Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. As I did mention in my prayer, I'm so sorry I did forget to mention at the beginning of the service, the Lord has called home one of our members, Evelyn Belgrave, and she had been in hospice care for a while uh, in Elmhurst, and the Lord uh, mercifully called her home to begin prayer for her family, and they just had a private service uh, up where she was in Elmhurst, but we give thanks that the Lord uh, has, has called her home, and we rejoice in the hope that goes beyond the grave for all those who die in the Lord. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5, over the next few Sunday mornings, we'll give special attention to the, the advent and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we look today at a very famous passage, and that passage that gives us the first chorus of Handel's Messiah, when the choir joins together, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and as Dr. Strange said a couple of weeks ago, the maestro is about to call the tune. So make preparation for all of these things this morning. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. God's holy word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be laid low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. And if you would go to John chapter 1. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And in John chapter 1, there the apostle says, We have seen his glory, that is, the glory of Jesus Christ. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us go to God once more in prayer. Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and to prepare the way for our salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All of us have probably, at some points, opened a gift that surprised us. Maybe expecting something, you open it up, it's, it's something very different than what you were expecting. That can be a, a good thing or a bad thing. Hopefully, the, most of the time that you've experienced that is a good thing. Something you weren't expecting, but wow, what a, what a wonderful gift. You think about the word glory, the glory of God, and you start to study it and look at it from different vantage points. What is it that we find, especially within the glory of God, that which glorifies Him? Well, as we open it up as, and considering the birth of Jesus Christ, the glory of God is full of grace, which can be perhaps a, a very surprising thing when we first consider it, and then we realize how natural it is that His glory is full of grace, and His grace is filled with glory. And it's the relationship of God's glory and grace which will endear our God to us, which will cause us to, to overflow with love and thankfulness and, and gratitude to Him. As we consider the, the, the glory of God and how glorious He is, grace becomes humbling. It becomes surprising that the eternal God uh, from eternity past purposed to save us as His people. So those who know God's glory know His grace, and those who know His grace will know His glory. But we also have this promise before us in this passage in Isaiah chapter 40 that all flesh will see the glory of God revealed. And this means that one day there will be no denying that God is glorious and that Jesus Christ is the King of kings, and there will be no denying what His authority means for every human heart. And so we are reminded as we consider these things, glory and grace, grace and glory, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are reminded of the importance of seeking refuge in the one who comes in the manger, for he is the same one who comes again to judge the living and the dead. So when you look at the character of Jesus' ministry and the, and, and the way that he saved us and how he saves us, does your heart leap with joy and thankfulness as it is described to you here in the words of the prophet? Does your heart leap with joy that that is how Jesus saves us? I pray it will be so for all of us, for he is a God who saves like no other. First consideration today is this, the Messiah comes to give the comfort that no one else can give. The Messiah comes to give the comfort that no one else can can give. The, the background for this uh, beautiful passage, the beginning of Isaiah 40, 
comforts, comforts my people, says your God. There's been a lot of discussion about what the background is. One of the most likely answers to that is the background of, uh, the background of this passage is the narrative of Isaiah 36 and 37, when the armies of Assyria are moving their way through Judah. They're capturing all of the cities, laying waste to much of the land of Judah, but then God, by his sovereign hand, stops the army of Assyria just as they reach Jerusalem, and he saves Jerusalem from certain death and destruction. You can read about that in Isaiah 37, and in verses 33 through 37, there we read uh, that the angel of the Lord goes out and strikes down 185,000 of the Assyrian army, and thus they are Uh, blown back, and they retreat. There was no reason, humanly speaking, for this to happen. It was God's intervention, and because of this, Jerusalem becomes a special witness to the power and the grace and the glory of God. They had rebelled against God. They had sinned against Him. All that had come their way that was leading up to exile were things that they deserved because of their sin. And yet, in this little part of the story, God intervenes. He says, no more. The destruction will end here. By God's power, the city of Jerusalem for that time was spared. This, of course, makes Jerusalem and those who would have been in Jerusalem especially fitted to be a beacon of hope and a proclaimer of salvation. Jerusalem comes this beacon of hope and this testament to the power of God who saves against human expectations and over and above all human power. This is the way that that God saves. So they become this beacon of hope, but then Jerusalem becomes also this source of, of proclamation for the rest of Judah to be reminded that our God will save us. He will not forget us, and He will do things that no one else would expect Him to do. That's the way that God saves. And so you read later on in Isaiah 40, verse 9, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Right? So Zion becomes this herald of good news because of the deliverance of of God. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. In other words, behold the God who saves. See what he does. Study it. Learn about it. And take comfort in it. This obviously is the the background, but this is a messianic passage, isn't it? So, its ultimate fulfillment is pointing us to Jesus Christ. Thus, the the comfort that Isaiah 40 speaks of is the comfort of knowing Christ. And what happens with the Assyrian army prefigures the comfort of knowing God's grace in Jesus Christ. God who saves against human expectations and over and above human power is the one who showed us what this truly means when he sent his son to die for us. Speaking of comfort in Christ, the beginning of the Gospel of Luke describes this, right? As uh, Jesus is being brought to the temple, Simeon is waiting there. And what is the, the, the way that Simeon's faith is described? He is one who's waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel, that comfort that comes only through redemption, only through God's saving work. 
And so Simeon, of course, famously sees Jesus and he takes him and he says, Lord, in, in a prayer, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Such faith that we see in Simeon, because he understands as he looks into the face of this child, Jesus, the baby, what he sees is the consolation, the comfort, the salvation of Israel. You see, this passage teaches us the nature of the comfort that Christ brings. So ask yourself this morning, brothers and sisters, are you living in a way that allows you to find this comfort in Jesus? We talk about it a lot in our Reformed tradition, our only comfort in life and in death, that I belong to Jesus Christ. Why, why do we say that? Because it is the only comfort that is strong enough to be with us through life and death. Many of the joys, many of the blessings of this life are good and wonderful and they come from the hand of God. But what is it that allows you to enjoy the blessedness for which you were made, both in life and in death, Christ alone? In order to know the comfort that comes in Jesus Christ, this comfort that is proclaimed to us from Isaiah 40, what do we need to know? Well, it begins, of course, by knowing your need. And knowing your desperate need for a Savior is something that happens through the work of God. Unless we come to the Lord, we fall down on our faces before Him, and we ask that He would give us a greater sense of our need. The Reformers talked about uh, what was called the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Do you go to God often asking Him to make known to you the exceeding sinfulness of sin? The extent to which what you do alienates you from the grace, from the glory of God, from His holiness, from His majesty. Do you know something of the exceeding sinfulness of sin? Or do you judge what you ought to do before God? Do you judge the state of your soul not based on God's word and on His majesty and on His holiness but do you judge those things from the maxims and judgments of the world? Do we allow the thinking of the world to form the way in which we think about the way that we relate to God? Or do you come before the Lord asking that you would know something of the exceeding sinfulness of sin so that you would know something of the true comfort that is found in Jesus Christ? The, the warfare ends in Isaiah chapter 40 when the iniquity is pardoned. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Your worst enemy is sin. The worst thing about you is your sin and your sinfulness. And if you begin to think that way, you will see the comfort that comes in Jesus Christ alone. You will glimpse God's grace and his glory. You will see his grace bound up with his glory and the other way around. And of course, you will begin to see the beauty of Jesus. John Newton says, when the Lord God speaks comfort to the human heart, he proposes one object and only one as the necessary and all-sufficient source of comfort. This is Messiah. Jesus in his person and offices, known and received by faith, affords a balm for every wound and a cordial for every care. Just like Jerusalem, as we begin to see the glory of God's grace in saving us from our sin, we become not only a witness to the power of God's grace, but proclaimers of that grace, just as Jerusalem was in Isaiah chapter 40. We can proclaim, as God's people, we can proclaim to a world that is laid waste in sin 
and destruction, just as the rest of Judah was laid waste because of the Assyrian army. We can proclaim to a world laid waste in sin that Christ is their comfort and hope. That God saves against human expectations and over and against human powers. And he gives a comfort that is unlike any other. We also read of a way prepared. So our second idea this morning, a way prepared. This presses upon us the exclusivity of the comfort of, of the Messiah. And next we see these several verses uh, speaking of the preparation of the way of the Messiah that he would come. When a royal king visits a city, there are many preparations that need to be made. The citizens of the city want everything to go well. They want his welcome to, uh, to, to go over smoothly. And what we see is that God, in several different ways, prepared the way for Christ, not so that his reception would be filled with the most fanfare, for we know that that's not what happened, and that's not why Jesus came. Jesus did not come so that he might sit on an earthly throne. But God prepared the way so that his work, so that the work of Christ would be most magnified, so that the work of Christ would be most effective. So we, th we think of the way that was prepared in, in the world. Essentially, the world was ready for Jesus. He came forth at just the right time because it was God's will that that's when he would come. But we see the way in which God was acting in his infinite wisdom. The way was prepared for a Savior. You can think of the, something like the, the succession of kingdoms that led up to uh, the Roman Empire. So you've got Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. And that put the world into a situation where the world was more connected than it had ever been. There had been more uh, going between places than there ever had been up to that point. And also that the propagation of the Greek language made the dissemination of a single message as possible as it had ever been. The, uh, the ability to bring the proclamation of the gospel of Christ in the Greek language was much more possible than it would have been centuries before that. This succession of kingdoms, Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome, also revealed something else that the citizens of the world needed to consider. Earthly kingdoms may rise to incredible levels of power, and empires may be able to build themselves up uh, to, to levels of authority never before seen, and to, to bring power together in ways that were never thought possible, and yet they will not last forever. And oftentimes, they will fall quickly, and great will be the fall of their house. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. Kingdoms rise and fall simply at the word of our God. But in Daniel 7, where we read of a lot of this succession of kingdoms through prophecy, there we read, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. You have that emphasis on the eternity of God's kingdom. So the world was prepared for a message that could be disseminated quickly throughout the world in ways that it hadn't been before. And the idea of an everlasting heavenly kingdom would have a ready-made contrast with the world empires that continued to rise and fall. A kingdom that will last forever. And a God and a king that will reign forever and ever you had a ready-made contrast with these kings and these uh, Caesars and these empires that would rise to in incredible levels of power 
and yet great would be the fall of their house. There's also a way that was prepared in Israel. So, of course, famously, uh, this is a, a prophecy about John the Baptist. John the Baptizer, as uh, my oldest daughter calls her, calls him. John the Baptizer prepares the way in Israel, and his ministry points to Christ by putting a challenge to the religious institution of the day. It challenges what's going on in Israel. Must these institutions, must the temple, must they give way to the Messiah? And because of uh, the character of John's ministry and his preaching, we see that that is exactly what must happen. John is in the wilderness. And so he challenges it, the Israelites whose ultimate hope would be in Jerusalem or in the cities of Judah. This is a heavenly message. His message is one of repentance, which challenges the religious institutions of the day to say, don't assume that because you partake in the outward forms of religiosity, that your heart is right with God. His message was one of repentance. He's not in the temple, thus prefiguring that Jesus would usher in a more perfect ministry where forgiveness of sins would not be confined to one particular place. This would have been hugely challenging to accept for many, but many did. Many came to John and were baptized by him. Lastly, he dies a death without earthly glory. And so he prefigures the truth that those who give allegiance to Jesus will likely suffer and will likely not hold earthly power or glory. The way was prepared in the world, in Israel, through the proclamation of John. The way was prepared for this Messiah. And then he appears. He appears. So what is the character of his ministry? The character of his ministry is this, that he will confound human wisdom, he will pour contempt on human glory, and he will give his benefits to those who seem least likely to receive it. He will confound human wisdom, he will pour contempt on human glory, and he will give his benefits to those who seem least likely to receive it. In Luke chapter 7, there is a, a woman who comes to Jesus who's described to us as a sinner, and she comes before Jesus, she wets his feet with her tears. She wipes them with the hair of her head. She kisses his feet and anoints his feet with the ointment. And there's, uh, there's a Pharisee there, and he's offended by all of this. And he says, if this man, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This man represents one of the dominant ways of thinking about things in the religious spirit of the day. That approaching someone of great worth means that you bring within yourself your own righteousness. And Jesus confounds that wisdom with his message. He goes on to explain in a parable that, that someone who is forgiven more loves more. And thus you see the devotion of this woman as a testament to the fact that she has been forgiven much and thus she will love his, her Savior much. And that becomes the way that the gospel is to be proclaimed. That there is no denying the depth of our sin, but to those who see the depth of their sin, the exceeding sinfulness of their sin, they look to the Savior who is their righteousness, who is their reconciliation, who is their source of eternal life, and their heart overflows with love to Him. The ministry of Jesus is chiefly about forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins not recognizing human worth through those 
who bring their own righteousness. This is a woman who glimpsed glory and grace, and for that she loved Jesus. She saw the glory of God bound up with grace. You think of the, for instance, this idea of, of God bestowing uh, his benefits on those whom you would least expect. You think of the story of Bethlehem. This day, Bethlehem has a population of about 28,000 people, roughly about the size of, of South Holland, right? It's roughly about the same size. But it's known throughout the world, isn't it? Bethlehem, this, this small city, kind of in the shadow to the south of Jerusalem, a small town that's known throughout the world as much as any of the famous cities of the, of the modern world and of the ancient world. Why? Because of its connection to Jesus. Connection to Jesus gives honor and it bestows uh, blessing. You think of the shepherds that received this announcement of the angels, for glory to God in the highest. And what's so amazing about, about that instance is this majestic, heavenly appearance of the angels who are saying, uh, they, they have this message that is unequaled in its importance in the history of the world. Glory to God in the highest, and it's proclaimed to those who are of the lowest status of society. Glory to God in the highest, proclaimed exclusively to the lowest. The shepherds were the ones who saw that while they were out in the fields. So the valleys are exalted. The valleys are exalted in Jesus Christ because it is Christ who is exalted in the gospel. Those who come to him lose their life so that they may find it in Jesus Christ, so that he may be exalted in him. We also read that the mountains are laid low. So he pours contempt on human glory. That which is thought of as glorious in the mind of the world is exactly the opposite when we come to think of it relative to God's kingdom. And Jesus uh, spoke of this often, and he spoke of it nowhere more primarily than in connection to the Pharisees. So Luke chapter 16, Jesus says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will he, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to him, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He came uh, to pour contempt upon earthly glory. In fact, he shirked earthly glory and thrones. He confused Pilate, as uh, we heard a couple of weeks ago when Dr. Strange preached that for us. He confounded, uh, he poured contempt on human glory. He confused the rulers of the day. And yet now, he commands the largest force on earth. Jesus Christ commands the hearts of more than anyone else on earth. The mountains are laid low and the valleys are exalted. We also read that the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. This is the last characteristic of, uh, of the Messiah's ministry. What this means is that the work of the Messiah will be done for all to see. That the gospel will be clearly set forth and that his call will be for anyone. Contrast that with the, the religiosity of the day in, in Israel that was ruled by by the Pharisees, 
who largely represented uh, a, an approach that laid heavy burdens on people, as Jesus said. And they would kind of go back and forth about the law, and they would be adding things and changing things uh, relative to their interpretation of the law, always laying a burden on the people that was heavier than they could bear, as Jesus would say. But Jesus came to make the uneven ground level and the rough places a plain. In other words, he cut a clear path to blessedness with God. If you want blessedness with God, Jesus made the way clear and plain and attainable. The gospel is simple enough for anyone to understand. He, and beyond that, not only is it easy or simple to understand, but he furnishes us, Christ furnishes us with his blood and his righteousness and his Holy Spirit that we might live out the call of the gospel. John Newton says that Jesus made the path of obedience plain, possible, and pleasant. He made it clear. The gospel is clear and simple enough for anyone to understand. The path of obedience is possible. Why is it possible? Because through his blood, he reconciles us to God. Through his righteousness, we are made acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God. And thus, we can live our lives knowing that we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, standing in grace, in the covenant of grace. And because of our sincere and genuine faith, God looks upon his children and he is pleased with their sincere efforts of obedience. It's not because we, we become uh, magically powerful in obeying the commandments of God. But it's because Jesus has reconciled us to God. He furnishes us with his spirit so that we might render true obedience unto the Lord. And of course, in all of our imperfections, his blood covers our sins. So the path of obedience is plain, it's possible, and of course, it's pleasant. It's pleasant. Only because of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, only because of him and his work, can a heart truly say to live as Christ, to die as gain. To live as Christ, to die as gain. My highest goal in life is that Jesus Christ would be honored in my body, no matter the cost at which that comes. What my, my, my highest goal to which I want to attain is that Christ would be honored in my body. Read, read in the Psalms of the soldiers who are willing in the day of battle. And that's what we are. We're willing in the day of battle. We don't stand back with fear. But as God calls us into the life he calls us, he furnishes us with power to be able to say, I know that I'm reconciled to you through Jesus Christ. And the way is pleasant because of my Savior. So the glory is revealed. The glory is revealed through the grace of God and, and, and the heart of the person who looks to Jesus Christ. When, when you hear the description of the character of the Messiah's ministry, does your heart leap with joy? Because outside of the power of God, you will not be able to truly rejoice in all of these things. You will not be able to truly rejoice in a Savior who confounds human wisdom and pours contempt on human glory. But if you do, and if you are rejoicing, then you could give thanks that God has worked in your heart. So not only that, not only do we rejoice in the character of the ministry of the Messiah, but we willingly embrace suffering and shame because we are glad to walk the path of our Savior. William Bradford said, What is glory in this world but shame? Why are you afraid to carry Christ's cross? Will you come into his kingdom and not drink of his cup? Jesus Christ, to the eyes of faith, is beautiful, he is supremely glorious. 
He is glorious not in spite of the cross, but indeed through the cross. Our confession of faith this morning, he humbled himself to the, opedi- to, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. His exaltation goes through Calvary, through the cross, and because of the cross, because we see the glory of God revealed in the grace of God. It's the marriage of, of glory and grace. And yet there's a warning in this passage, isn't there? Because we can rejoice to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We can rejoice to see glory and grace together. And yet, what do we have in this passage? The promise that all flesh will see it together. And we've confessed this morning that every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what we need to remember about the Christmas season is that it makes it inevitable that Jesus Christ will come again. At his first coming lends itself to, its sec- to his second coming. Christmas is inextricably linked to the return of Jesus Christ. The warning is that those who do not see the glory in the character of his ministry, that he exalts the valleys, that he lays the mountains low, that he gives forgiveness to the repentant sinner, that he extends his benefits to the despised of the world. If your heart does not leap for joy at those things, and having neglected to acknowledge his glory and grace, you will be forced to bend the knee to his glory in judgment. One day, those who love him and those who have rejected him will see it together. They will see his glory together. Be found amongst those who love him, who have trusted him, who have repented of their sins, who have renounced their pride and sought refuge in this Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word and ask that you would help that which has been proclaimed that is true take root in hearts, uh, that we would live in thankfulness, that we would live in acknowledging the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Thank you for grace and glory that we see manifested in him. We pray in his name, in Christ's name, amen. Uh, Let's respond by singing